and welcome to another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. Uh, I'm David Border-Giles, I'm a lecturer in Anthropology at Deakin University and I'm joined as ever by my trusty co-host Timothy Neal, a Senior Research Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. We also come to you with the support of the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. As ever, we're joined by a visiting fellow anthropologist to discuss their work, uh, the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. Our guest today is Dr. Sally Babbage, a senior lecturer in anthropology at the University of Queensland. Sally has been involved in historical and anthropological research with the people of Charters Towers, Queensland, since 2000, based on which she has developed two books, Written True, Not Gammon, A History of Aboriginal Charters Towers, and Aboriginal Family and the State, The Conditions of History. Since 2010, she's worked on mining in Indigenous peoples' territories in Chile. Her research spans the anthropology of resource extraction, Indigenous identity and politics, Aboriginal kinship, native title, and applied anthropology. In addition, as is often our custom, today we're joined by a guest host from Deakin University. For this episode, we've invited Dr. David Kelly, a postdoctoral researcher at Deakin's Home Research Hub. David's ethnographic research in Broome explores how place, particularly indigenous conceptions of country, facilitates intercultural encounter. His work spans the spatial politics of indigenous settler relations, affect, activism, and environmentalism. And his current research focuses on urban space, housing, and displacement. So welcome to the podcast, both of you. Thanks, Tim. Hi, David. Hi, hi David. Hi, hi. <laughs> Good to see you both. Sally, we always start off with a, an icebreaker about your journey into anthropology. So what made you an anthropologist? Yeah, thanks. As Tim mentioned, the, the books that I wrote in collaboration and based on my PhD research in Charters Towers both mention history in the title, and that's a bit of a, a clue. I start, I, as an undergraduate student, I saw myself as an historian. I saw myself as studying history as the main kind of thing but I kept insisting on and getting in trouble for doing things like um, doing my research for for essays on the history of Fremantle I, I did my undergraduate at University of Western Australia in Perth and doing a sort of history of Fremantle pubs by talking to people in pubs in Fremantle um, and insisting on Follow talking to interest. people yeah <laughs> following interests and and this kind of yeah the interest in social history I came to understand eventually as being better facilitated by anthropology. Mm. I also, I was always really interested in work, in working. I didn't really, I didn't expect to go on in my studies. Mm. I thought I would, um, I did honours so that I could work as an anthropologist mm. and after honours I worked as an apply, in applied anthropology. I worked as a junior, as a research assistant in cultural heritage work related to mining in Western Australia and other kind of suburban development around Perth and also on as a junior research assistant, a kind of junior consultant on native title claims with senior consultants. So I didn't ever work mm. for a representative body in those times in Western Australia. Just, yeah, I just got this work as a kind of subcontractor to the right. expert anthropologists in native title matters and mm. worked all over Western Australia doing that and um, for about three and a half years after my honours. I know some of our listeners are honours students who are thinking about their pathway into anthropology and some of them are asking themselves, all right, if I don't want to jump right into a PhD but I care about anthropology, you know, how do I think about my next steps? Uh, do you remember after your honours then, what if you didn't go straight into a PhD, how did you plot that out? I don't know. It was my. Do I remember that? Well, I was in my 20s. I don't remember it that well. But I... <laughs> um, <laughs> How did I plot that? I didn't really. I kind of fell into it. Somebody said to me after my honours I was doing bits and pieces of work. Um, I was working uh, as a childcare assistant in a drug and alcohol counselling centre. It was really closely related to my honours. <laughs> Not at all. Um, I was doing. I was partly on the dole and partly doing that. And somebody. And I, I was looking. I kept looking for work and. I joined the Western Australian Anthropological Society and started going to their meetings because somebody told me, oh, you know, you might meet somebody there who needs a research assistant, and that's mm. exactly what happened. So right. I met somebody there who said, can you come and do this little bit of work? As a student of history who had done anthropology really because I thought, an anthropology honours really because I thought I'd get more work, this was mm. what happened. Right. 
but as I didn't really let go of history. So I'd never done any methods in anthropology in my honours. Um, I didn't know how to draw a genealogy. I didn't, um, <laughs> I didn't have the kind of field methods that you get as an honours student. I did um, historiography instead. And so, um, so when I was um, when I got this kind of, I started to get this work as a junior. I um, I just I read a bunch of books and was thrown into the field with these consultants who were looking for work. Now it's a bit different to what you would find now. It's very different. In fact, this was the mid to late nineties, mm-hmm. and it was a very hopeful kind of era in a way in terms of native title. Um, I think. A number of us, especially juniors, saw, um, hadn't yet been, I guess, disappointed by the system of native title. We still thought that there was great potential for people in terms of a kind of landed justice from, from that system. And certainly as a junior in that system, I thought this was one of my interests in working in that area, was to see some sort of justice from native title processes. So did you go into your PhD with a set of optimistic glasses still about native title? No, exactly the opposite. I'd, be, I'd been working on a claim, the Ngunnawonka Wadjuri, Nyalawonka claim, which is between Mekithara and Newman in Western Australia. I worked on that claim as a junior for two and a half years. And when the Western Australian newspaper comes out with a headline at the end of their consent determination that says title win, you know that Aboriginal people haven't necessarily won, you know. Um, And Mm -hmm. in fact, it was a great disappointment for those claimants in terms of the kinds of structures that were in place after the determination compared Mm. to the kinds of relationships they had in place with station owners before that. Mm. And the process was long and... um, fairly violent in lots of ways it was very trying for people exhausting and I felt like as a junior anthropologist if I I, I wanted to continue working in this system but I wanted to do it better I felt like I hadn't also hadn't served the process very well as somebody Mm. with just honours training and so I wanted to do a PhD basically to get more training and do more and do better applied work Uh, The PhD project that I started was a project that was set up by James Cook University, Rosita Henry, who's now Professor Rosita Henry up at James Cook. And she set up this project that was a collaboration between James Cook University, an ARC-funded scholarship that had some, a tiny amount, but a collaborative relationship with the native title representative body at the time, Central Queensland Land Council, which is now um, not... Uh, it's now part of North Queensland Land Council. And so they had set up this PhD scholarship to basically get some cheap native title research done <laughs> by getting a PhD mm. project done in an area that had never had much anthropological work done before. And so that's what... The rate of, for a PhD is probably cheaper than the rate for a consultant. That's right. Mm. You know, like a, and, and the it's government good. pays for it. Yeah, and, it's good um, and the... The representative body could um, try to guide it. They tried to sort of say these are the kinds of um, things that we want you to study and that we mm. want you to ask. And I mean, that to me seemed like the kind of PhD that I wanted, you know, a sort of, oh, I could, you know, this could be useful. <laughs> and then if I remember right, you wrote about the, the land council not quite disappearing, but sort of the, the organisation changing at some point midway through your fieldwork? Yeah, it, but that was part of a sort of broader restructure of the representative bodies across Australia. There used to be a, lot, a greater number of representative bodies in Queensland, for example, and now there are sort of, I think, four rather than the eight or nine that mm. there were before. So after their doctoral research, some anthropologists continue to work in the same place for the rest of their lives, some cultivate a second or third site, and some just give up doing ethnographic fieldwork whatsoever. And in your case, I mean, as we've kind of covered, your PhD research centred on North Queensland, and you now live and work in South Queensland, but your main fieldwork site is in the far north of Chile, kind of similar latitude, but a very different longitude. So can you tell us a little bit about how you made that switch and how you came to choose Chile? Uh, you know, I was really lucky after my PhD that I got uh, a job at uh, the University of Queensland, straight out of my PhD, um, getting a, a teaching and research position there. And one of the things, you know, I kept asking was, you know, after you finish it, what's my next project? Mm, mm-hmm. I kept trying to come up with questions about Queensland, about Australia, about 
work that linked to my previous work and I couldn't convince myself that any of those questions were interesting. I lacked inspiration to mm. ask a follow-up question. And I was visiting Charters Towers one time and it was around then that I, the idea started to form um, and visiting my friend Patsy who when I want something from her I call Arnie Patsy and she, <laughs> um, one of the co-authors of that written true book and she and her husband were having a kind of political rant on the back of a National Geographic or Discovery Channel program they'd just been watching because it was around the time of the signing of, of around the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights and they were saying you know that we're we Aboriginal people we're just like the Irish having to put up with British colonisation and mm. and then they were comparing you know, this sort of political struggles, Indigenous political struggles with others around the world, with global struggles. I thought that's kind mm. of interesting and it started, it sort of added to the thinking I was already starting, oh, where shall I go? Did you already have a relationship with Chile at that time? Um, when I was a kid, my family, we lived in Chile when I was a kid and I'd never really thought that I would do research there, but part of my family moved around a lot when we were kids and it was part of the reason I became an anthropologist I think is the sort of that challenge and joy of trying to get along with new people and um, being interested in being around new people but in thinking about doing research until it didn't come naturally I, th I cast around a lot before I came to it and then I thought well you know I, I would really like to actually speak a second language again I would like that as one of my skills mm. as a person in the world and I have some you know some links in Chile so maybe something would work and I started visiting there on my holidays and then I got little pots of pilot research money from the university internal grant funding from the university that you know doesn't really exist anymore but <laughs> but it was I was able to draw on and um spending my summers there when I wasn't teaching and building up my language skills and getting about in the north. And it's, I realised that there was a huge number of Australian mining companies or Australian majority Australian capital, extractive capital operating in Chile. And I thought, well, perhaps there's a project here. And spending time in San Pedro de Atacama, which is uh, in the north, in the second region of Chile, in the library there, they have a museum of anthropology and archaeology in the, as part of the Universidad Católica del Norte, the Northern Catholic University. And the library is wonderful, wonderful collection of things. And somebody said to me once, oh, did you know that, you know, if you're interested in mining, there's a town down the other end of the Salat, about 100 kilometres away, and all the mining is around them. And I sort of went, oh, okay. And that's when I went there and talked to people. And on talking to them, I also realised this was a place that... And, and talking to also other anthropologists around, there wasn't anybody really writing about mining at the time. This is around 2008, 2009. But Peine, where I started working eventually, they had in 1997 and then again in 2007 renewed an agreement with the big Australian BHP Billiton who operates the biggest copper mine in the world within their mm -hmm. territory. Mm -hmm. So Mira Escondida is the copper mine. And they had signed this f the first agreement between an indigenous community and a mining company in Chile of this kind. And, you know, these sorts of agreements happen all the time in Australia. Yeah, they've become very routine here. They've become very like routine. Quite a short history uh, yeah. here as, as in Chile. As in there. And so I, I thought, ah, oh, well, I wonder how this is going. And I asked around and nobody was really writing about how it was going. And people in Painet, the community leadership at the time said, mm. we'd like you to write about how it's going too. So <laughs> mm -hmm. that's how it kind of got the going. Just to touch on a little thing there about the, the language acquisition, because lots of anthropologists, you know, acquire a second or third language to do their fieldwork, but they don't really talk about it very much in my experience. So how do you know you're ready to go when you're operating in a second language? I mean, did you have any anxiety about uh, running out into the field in a second language? I mean, especially Chilean Spanish, I'm just going to put it out there. So it's, <laughs> it's a difficult Spanish. It's, it's because it's 
the Spanish that I learnt when mm. I was a kid, and I didn't learn it very well. And then again, I learnt it kind of on the street. I'm not a very good classroom student, and so I just learnt it by actually, um, making lots of mistakes and pretending I knew that I mm. could speak. And mm. my first interviews that I attempted in 2009, before I really started the project proper, I still have them and I still listen to them and laugh and cringe at these kinds of attempts at interviews mm. that I did. And people in Peña speak more slowly than people in Santiago, so that helps. It's a different accent, but I guess I learnt most of my Spanish there mm. and making lots of mistakes and listening as much as possible. I really enjoy the way that one learns a language in person. Mm. I think Spanish is my strongest language and I speak it, when I get it right, I speak it textbook well. Um, which is not how anybody I talk to speaks it. And so it always throws me when someone, like, you know, conjugates a, a word in a colloquial sense. But I, I learned Portuguese just by speaking it to people, and there, there was a wonderful moment when I realised I didn't know how to spell these things that I was saying because I assimilated it a different way. And it sounds like if you grew up with Chilean Spanish, you learned it that way? Yeah, but I didn't really learn it that way when I was a kid. I guess I learnt it that way when I was there. Mm. And you're saying you didn't know how to spell things. I mean, those first attempts at interviews in 2009, I've still got the notes of the transcriptions that I attempted to make because my Spanish was fairly bad, you know. And so I, I'd constructed some questions, some mm -hmm. big open questions mm -hmm. to ask of people and then recorded their answers, hoping that then I would be able to... <laughs> Future Sally would be able to come back. <laughs> um, and so my understanding of what they were saying was pretty good. I could use a dictionary and various other translating tools to, to form up the questions. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't respond very well in conversation. My skills weren't that great either, and so I have some of those early transcriptions too, and they're, they're pretty funny as well. But, um, <laughs> but it is also surprising if you do understand a fair bit and you're asking about a theme that is that is familiar to you from having really thought about the region a lot. And the person you're speaking to is responding to you in kind and at least understanding some of what mm. you're asking. The communication, going mm. back to those interviews, the communication is surprisingly good. But yeah, it definitely got a lot better. You know, I did do some study then because I had a couple of moments where I, I scared myself by not really knowing what was going on at a mm. crucial time. And it was a bit, oh, I, yeah, no, I have to pick up my game on the language skills. Mm. Can I circle back to ask about the mine as a site? Mm. And it sounds like in some ways the mine is uh, already a global site. We, if we're not people who work on mining, I think it's easy to think about a mine in a really sort of localised way. You know, it's, it's a hole in the ground. Could you tell us more about what's involved and what makes the site more than just, you know, a local industry. Like what makes El Liceo in Chile something that we're all connected to in Australia and that sort of thing? Yeah, so Peña as a town, as an Indigenous community, is this tiny little place that looks down onto the Atacama salt pan, the Salad, and on the salt pan are two lithium mines, a litio, as you said, mm -hmm. two big, and they're growing right now exponentially. Mm. <laughs> and they're very visible, right? So they're very local in a sense. But Minera Escondida and another big copper mine are in the mountains and they're actually invisible. They're at very high altitude, way down in the kind of south of, of Peña's recognised indigenous territory or the territory they recognise. It's not yet recognised mm. by the state. And it's not within a road that they take very often. It's kind of invisible. And yet Minera Escondida especially are an incredibly visible international presence and they're visible in the town as well on logos on people's shirts and mm -hmm. they're visible in the what, what really matters then is not the hole in the ground for Minera Escondida it's the water extraction that's closer mm -hmm. to Peña that that matters to people the mine itself is kind of all the way over there and not in a place mm -hmm. that matters it's it's where they extract the water that matters and then the company, the global corporate, is present in constant requests for meetings, I guess, mm. <laughs> um, for consultation, is present, as I said, in the uniforms that people wear. So some people 
um, have had employment in time, but they're very sturdy bits of clothing for people who work in agricultural mm. matters. You know, often jumpsuits, mining jumpsuits, right. are really sturdy, right, thick right. canvas, and so, so they enter into a kind of social distribution, not necessarily because absolutely. you work there. And you know, BHP as a big global is also present in people's memories as when they you know came and made the deal in 1997 and this big blonde Australian fella came to this tiny place and shook the hand of the president to make this agreement, which was a tiny amount. It was something like, mm, I think the original deal was about $15,000 a year or something very low. I can't remember the exact figure. So Alex Golub describes Mines as a kind of social actor or a social person. Does that feel like it resonates with your work there then? Yeah, it does. It doesn't, it doesn't. So I think, you know, I spent a lot of time um, also before I was able to get some of my more critical stuff published, I did have, you know, a fair bit of access to company personnel. I don't get as many answers to my phone calls as I used to, but... um, So you're doing something right. (laughs) Perhaps. But, you know, I was, I had access to a number of different personnel in their social performance teams, managers and, and community liaison people. And there's some stuff that I'm writing around their kinds of moral discourse about doing good in the world and that I find really interesting. And also what's interesting is the way that I've been told off by people from the community for being too cynical about the company. Right. So treating the company as as this bad person embodied mm. in these personnel and people say, no, no, they're just, a, you know, they've just got a job and they're trying to do a good job. I think what I'm trying to say is that there is this sense of the company as a bad person, mm. you know, a structurally bad person, a domineering and powerful force. Mm-hmm. And yet it's definitely fractured by people's personal relations with the social performance team Mm. that they see and they start to make relationships with before then that person moves on and gets a job elsewhere Mm. and a new person starts. And these personal relationships that people build with the social performance team I think are are really interesting and I'm writing a bit about those. I haven't really finished kind of drawing that out. But... I think it does fracture that sense of Leviathan that Golub talks about in terms of the company, powerful whole. Right. Could I circle back to Charters Towers a little bit too? Because, in, I mean, you've written about, you know, fish, water, copper, uh, lithium, uh, land itself. So you've written about all these different kinds of resource extractions and resource usages. Is there a way in which you found, either in terms of methods or in terms of the kinds of questions you wanted to ask, was there a way in which you found... And the new place also an old place for you? Or the, the new problems already familiar somehow? Or was it brand new? So different and so new. Mm. I mean, <laughs> in terms of being a foreigner. In Charters Towers, I guess I was expected to know the answer to lots of questions. Um, mm. Even though, you know, I hadn't, I'd only just arrived in Queensland... Um, I was expected to know the kind of history of the place and to know something about what it was to be in that place as an Australian, as a white Australian. And that expectation meant it was hard sometimes to ask the obvious questions that you need to ask as an anthropologist. Whereas in Chile, especially in the beginning with my crappy language skills, I was um, I was kind of expected to be a moron and to be asking all these dumb questions <laughs> all the time, you know, like just <laughs> right. Yeah, of course this yeah, person yeah. needs to know. Yeah, of course. And and so I could ask the same question over and over again in lots of different ways, and people kind of seemed to put up with it because I was such a novice and such an outsider. And that was a it was kind of liberating to be such a novice. Yeah, but a very different field experience. Were you the first Australian that a lot of people had met? Because I'm, I'm kind of curious about these Chile-Australia flows, which David's mm. already kind of pointed to, which I think are kind of, to a certain extent in my experience, invisible to Australians, that there are these financial ties, yeah. for example. And there are some, you know, and then encounter some personal ties. Uh, to what extent is Australia thought of as a kind of approximate place in Pioneer? Probably not, mm. or I don't, I don't know. Um, they'd come across, you know, the big Australian. The big blonde one. The big blonde Australian. Mm. 
who was there for a short time. And they'd, they'd also come across, you know, some NGO workers and missionaries who were travelling through and had stayed there and some nice people that they liked. Um, but they did, I mean, they did associate me, because I was interested in writing about mining, they did associate me, necess- you know, um, perhaps with the mining company. Mm. And then when the University of Queensland had the Centre for Social Responsibility in Mining started up their work linking to the, um, to the Chilean mining industry and a whole bunch of majority Australian mining companies that were operating in Chile and started to run, in 2011 they ran the first one, a social responsibility in mining seminar and it's a corporate seminar with lots of people talking about their shiny new projects um, in environmental and social sustainability and so on. And so because I was at University of Queensland and there's connections, I consistently had these questions from people. Have you got funding from here? Are you connected to there? Does your research, you know, mm. connect mm. in with this? And so there is a sense that Australia is a mining place and Chile is a mining place. And that sense is, has definitely grown over the time that I've been there and grown alongside a lot of Australian contracting companies that are working with the other mineral extraction industry, especially in the north of Chile and Santiago. There's lots of Australians in Santiago. And it seems to be growing and it seems to have grown since I've been working there, significantly, I guess. Mm. Is that where the resonances end or is there an impulse in your work to try and make resonances across those sites? I'm kind of getting there. I'm trying to get there. I guess that was the intention originally of of thinking um, back towards Australia eventually, but I just keep getting caught up. In the context. In the context in Chile to keep writing about Chile. I'm starting to kind of draw it back. Last year I got a bit of funding to bring some Chilean academics to Australia and a couple of really great Indigenous thinkers from around where I work, from San Pedro as well as Peine, and we put on a workshop um, around this time last year in Queensland with some, with some people from Charters Towers and a couple of people from Marpoon and, and some Australian academics as well. We put on this workshop on Indigenous people and experiences of extraction. That was a little bit cultural exchange. We went to Stradbroke Island and the owners, traditional owners of Stradbroke Island gave us a tour and talked about sand mining and so that was an attempt at bringing, I guess, my fieldwork interlocutors together in the same place as a way of kind of sharing this privilege of travel that we get. Mm-hmm. Um, but also as a way of people in Chile had been asking me, how do Aboriginal people in Australia deal with mining? How do they deal with mining companies? And I kept saying, well, in lots of different ways. <laughs> and, then, and people in Charters Tower saying, well, next time you go to Chile, you should take me. Um, I haven't done that yet, but um, but this workshop was, I guess, responding to those requests, but also trying to turn my mind to those resonances, those comparisons that I haven't yet written. I'm not there yet. <laughs> um, I'm really interested in the sort of, and it's not uh, anywhere near something that I'm familiar with yet, but I'm quite interested in the, you know, the possibilities of global indigenous collaboration in various ways. Are there vectors by which that's already happening between Chile and Australia? Uh, there are Mapuche activists, definitely, who are, um, that I know of that are involved with the sovereign embassy in Brisbane, mm. in Musgrave Park. Right. And there was recently some exchange there that was happening in the activist scene. And there are little things, right? So I've met some environmental activists and extraction type activists in Chile who are hooked into First Nations groups in Canada and linked to some academic work there and then some of them are linked to people here in Australia as well in that Mm. space. So there are these networks of people. Mm. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And I'm not, we haven't really followed that up. But that's one of the things that everyone was keen to do from that experience was to was to then can I rather than set up something new actually link in with some of the networks that are already happening. Plus, as part of their struggle is similar with you is that they get bogged down in their own context and kind of struggle to keep the resonance going. 
Yeah, and I think one of the things that was really tough, of course, is the language. So it was fine for the academics who, who move across Spanish and English fairly well, but for community people, you know, we, it's an expensive endeavour to employ a translator. The first time I did it with just one guest a few years ago during the G20. Yeah, which I was there for. <laughs> during the G20 <laughs> that was a fun um, stuff uh, in 2014. Um, we tried to do all of that translation ourselves between myself and a, and a friend and colleague and, um, yeah, we were exhausted and we didn't serve the context very well. You know, mm. I have the utmost respect for people who do mm. direct translation on the spot. You know, that's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> It seems to be the word of the day, right? <laughs> Exhaustion. So in some ways, um, both of your field sites could be said to produce economies of abandonment in Beth Palmanelli's evocative terms. Are there parallel ways in both cases in which people or things are abandoned or made surplus to requirements, firstly? And then what sorts of structural powers are at work there? Does it amount to a kind of accumulation by dispossession in each case? I suppose it's the intensity of the abandonment, right, that we're really talking about because the economies of abandonment are mm-hmm. a flow between things, places, sites. Mm-hmm. And so no one site has an economy of abandonment but has a particular intensity or an, an experience of abandonment. And so in each of your sites there might be flare-ups and kind of crystallizations of that abandonment moments. Yeah, I think so. I mean, working with that book of uh, reflecting on that book of Beth Povanelli's Economies of Abandonment for the paper about Kalama failing forward was um, was very clear. I mean, Kalama is a place that has been sacrificed to extraction in one of the most extreme ways that you could imagine. <laughs> I mean, it is it is just the kind of poster child for <laughs> for the ills of extraction in so many ways, this town. And you write about them referring to themselves as botada. Botada, right? yeah, abandoned. Thrown away. Yeah, thrown away. Is the ease to which that was performed by the state, you know, kind of sacrifice, mm. is that because of its, probably its remoteness in terms of psyche and physical geographical location, but also it's it's boundedness as a site so i mean we do it here in australia but we try to do it all over the place all at once (laughs) but but there it seems that it was you know very intense in that one spot i think in these northern mining towns where it's um it's it's such an extreme environment the atacama desert and you have these uh these towns that you know kalama was an oasis is an oasis in the desert. It's a, it's a rare place of water. It used to be a trading site. Um, it's still an agricultural centre. But it's also for Chileans, for southern Chileans, the north of Chile is just a mining zone. The whole thing is a mining zone. It's a place where people put up with the ills of mining because they're miners. And what struck me as looking into that case in Kalama was the way in which the, the media, um, the southern media, referred to the protests that were going on in Kalama at the time around being sacrificed, around being abandoned, around needing to claim back some of the wealth of Chukikamata, the copper mine Chukikamata, and needing to, to gain some of that wealth back and, and protesting that towards the central government. The way in which the reporters referred to that was the miners again were on the streets protesting and the people on the street protesting were government workers they were council workers they were you know they were the citizens of Kalama they were the taxi drivers but everybody's a miner according to the (laughs) centralist central um, Chilean view or the southern Chilean view of the north so these these sort of zones of sacrifice, I guess, like Kalama. But it's slightly different, I think, to the towns around the Salad, around the salt lake of Atacama. And that's because um, I think the the mining landscape there is newer. And it's also a place where there are national parks, where there's a tourist economy, and where 
the state has mostly been absent aside from its ability to allow development, <laughs> aside from its enabling of development, it is mostly absent in terms of infrastructure. So people do, in around the Salat, also talk about abandonment by the state in order to also justify why they would make deals with mining companies, you know, why, why they would go in for agreement with mining company in order um, to, to look for infrastructure and support. And they don't see or risk hasn't presented itself in the form of being maybe abandoned by a mining company? I think that's that's a really that's a new phenomenon. So the last few years people probably since about 2016 there's been a real increase in uh, kind of I guess you'd say resistance activities, protests, um, rejection of offers from mining companies and people sort of putting on the brakes. And this has come for a whole range of different reasons that actually I'm going to talk about in my, in my um, paper today at Melbourne Uni. Would some of them be um, related to the regional influence in, say, Bolivia and Ecuador around Buen Vivir and movements like that um, that are looking for more slower or degrowth kind of anti-neoliberal strategies? That, yeah, some of that discourse is coming through, some of that international discourse, and it's coming through also on the back of Chile's signing of Convention 169 of the International Labour Organization in 2009. And so it took a while to, for that signing of that convention to have an effect. That has a lot more kind of traction than the UN Declaration, by the way. You sign ILO 169 and it means you have to sign up to actual instituted forms of uh, recognition and self-determination within government. Mm. And so, but they've mm. taken a while to take effect. So those kinds of structural effects of that and greater participation and activism around that from the south, from especially really politically active Mapuche groups in the south of Chile, mm -hmm. has also filtered um, north, Atacameño, so uh, are less renowned for their political activism and but are, are taking on some of that and also taking on, I guess, some of the more global discourse of indigenous rights that's coming through as a result of this attention after the signing of Convention 169, yeah. So um, in the mid-late Anthropocene, a big elusive concept of the Anthropocene at times, um, in the shadow of both this ecological crisis and displacement, we can expect these complex intersections, I suppose, between Indigenous politics mm -hmm. and environmental politics, which has been a source of contestation in this country over years, but also a, a source of convergence. Um, and since your work touches on both this indigenous and environmental politics, do you have any thoughts about the ways that some of these intersections will play out? Mm -hmm. And what can we expect as scholars, but also what can communities you work with expect? Yeah, well, in both places where I've worked, so in Charters Towers and in northern Chile, the people I've worked with, Indigenous people, are, in the case of Chile, are rural people who, when I first started working there, identified more as campesinos, as, as peasants, as farmers, than as Indigenous people. In Charters Towers, people have been uh, severely dispossessed from land and language and cultural trappings of uh, classical or traditional Aboriginality. Mm. And so in both cases, what has been, I guess, the stereotype of Indigenous struggles doesn't fit neatly with either of those groups. It doesn't fit neatly with people in Charters Towers. They struggle to perform a kind of indigeneity that can be recognised by the state and by others who would like to see them be more Indigenous. <laughs> and in Chile, they don't perform a kind of, uh, or they haven't until most recently performed a kind of resistance to mining that environmental movements would want them to or expect them to. And so there's there's not a neat fit. <laughs> there's not a neat fit in between the people. I and that's it's partly uh, the choice that I've made. Um, I'm interested in those sorts of unsettling um, categories <laughs> yeah. between those things. I've been involved in environmental 
movements myself and have been interested in this question then uh, what happens with these these kinds of alliances now in Chile in Peña with the increased kind of resistance to mining that's happened over the last few years it doesn't sit neatly with the environmental movement in Chile that's building around the Salar de Atacama with the increased lithium extraction it doesn't sit neatly with the environmental movement um where they're expecting Atacameños to <laughs> to perform the kind of resistant indigenous person. And quite often when, when they work out that the Atacamanian People's Council, the regional council that represents Atacamanian people, has a, has a negotiated equity deal with one of the lithium miners, it sort of puts... <laughs> it puts things at a at a difficult place and and say oh, this is you know this is inconsistent with an environmental perspective and um and i think it's those inconsistencies that to me make the position of indigenous people on the kind of frontier of mining on the front line of mining really complex um ethically complex for them in terms of making decisions about where they should lead <laughs> their um, decision making and it's similar for Australia right? Mm. Um, and, and comparative issues thinking back so in terms of thinking about how do we respond to these things I think they're kind of these places are like are a kind of microcosm of the complexities of of late capitalism of yeah. you know we say hopefully late capitalism mm. or <laughs> they're, they're, they're this mm. kind of little a study in small of all of those complexities of these unanswerable questions. Well, one of the things that kind of pervades all of that is these cycles of disappointment that occur between environmental groups, indigenous groups, and their relationships with states, corporations, those sorts of things. What I've encountered in some of the work that I did in the Kimberley was that disappointment was almost weaponized as a tool by indigenous environmentalists in order to disrupt those narratives themselves of the noble savage environmentalist type caricature and to the extent where they would present in your face indigenous poverty to say you know this isn't your good place this isn't our good place like you know you can't gloss over this so I'm wondering how disappointment manifests itself in the politics that you're seeing of the place. Yeah, I guess in the kind of um, promise, I can talk in a much more coherent way at the moment about my work in Chile. I haven't visited Charter's Towers for a couple of years now and I'm feeling a little, I think it's been a good two years since I've visited and I'm feeling a little bit distant. Ironically, <laughs> um, and and well, maybe it's three years. But in Chile, people were really um, hopeful about uh, lithium mining when it arrived in the late seventies, early eighties, and because at the time the Atacamanian communities were um, were really getting much much smaller as young people had to migrate. For you know, there was a huge drought around the early 1970s, mid-1970s, and it became impossible to do long-distance herding to survive anymore. And there's a whole kind of confluence, I guess, of, um, of factors that shifted at that time. And, around, and one of those factors was the arrival of Corfo and foot minerals and the lithium mines on the Salad. And people thought, great, you know, this is going to be jobs for us. And everybody went there asking for work. I'm really excited and until really recently that positive view of the lithium mines on the Salad was strongly there. People would say mining's really bad but not them you know <laughs> and but then lately it's just grown so big that them too and it's not just about scale but it's about before when it was small they knew who they were dealing with and they could have these kinds of some level of trust, I think, with that mine. And then in terms of the other kinds of relations that they had with mines, you know, the, the hope that the offers that they were getting would actually result in change. So one of the things that Minera Escondida did with their deal with Peña was they put in place a, a development plan, a very highly developed. It took them, I think, six months to 
put it together and took up a lot of community time, a really long kind of process of consultation, multiple consultants working together in collaboration with multiple committees of people, um, leaders in the community, young people, old people, all the rest of it. They put together this incredible development plan. It's sort of a stack of folders about a metre long in the, in the community offices and very few of these plans have come to fruition and there's a great deal of disappointment around around that promise because those development plans were done in really good faith. People wanted these things. People designed it themselves and thought about these things really deeply and then actually being able to make these things happen. It hasn't happened. And I think these disappointments do mount up and I think mount up as I'm sort of arguing, in, as we're arguing in a recent paper that we're, we're putting together and that I'm going to talk about in this seminar at Melbourne today about exhaustion, the disappointment kind of mounts up to exhaustion. And then one of the, one of the kinds of... Uh, one of the indicators of exhaustion is this resistance, which hasn't been there before, this kind of organised resistance around new minds especially. Um, you've written about, uh, and I think in both contexts actually, you've written about the way in which state rationalities are also able to assimilate new language and assimilate resistant language in order to sort of extend themselves. Uh, and I really appreciate this phrase you've used to describe uh, neoliberalism in Chile is failing forward. So even when it doesn't work, it's able to take on board new language from the people who are resisting it and then keep on going anyway. Mm. So, you know, to paraphrase, you know, reports of neoliberalism's demise have been greatly exaggerated uh, in 2019. Does that give you any sense of how to think about how these things will grow, how neoliberal logics will be able to keep growing in the, in the future? And what, if any, strategies people have to use to contest them now? if everything we do, uh, if all our disappointment can be sort of taken on board and made part of neoliberalism? David, I'm a, I'm a historian mostly. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me about, don't ask me about the future. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a hopeful kind of person and a lot of people are hopeful kinds of mm. people and they see, you know, I, I mean, these kinds of programs of resistance are not just protests in the street, for example, People are um, doing things like around the Paino, people are doing things. There's been a fair bit of rain in the last couple of years and, and people have done things like taken, uh, have increased their herds and taken them to pastures that they hadn't visited for a long time as a kind of protest action. So mm. herders occupying pastures that, would, uh, that may be subject to water extraction. And people talk about that as a kind of hopeful move because they say, well, you know, you know, when mining fails, <laughs> when the mines go, we need to have something and this is one of the things we have. But no, this is, it's a shit answer. Um, I mean, it's a shit answer because it's not an answer because young people don't want to be herders necessarily. And it's a shit answer because tourism is a shit answer too, you know, because they say, oh, you know, if we take our animals there, then it will look attractive for tourists as well. You know, indigenous tourism, this will look great for that too. And some of that is going on around the salad. But we know that tourism is another form of extraction and people are seeing that too around, around the salad. So I'm being very particular in my answer to you rather than kind of conceptual around, I guess post-neoliberalism. <laughs> but it's kind of interesting what you're saying around kind of, you know, the temporal horizons that gather around something like a mine, mm. because it's such a momentous thing mm. that people are imagining closure, which I think is something that binds Chile and Australia is like, who is imagining closure and in what terms mm. actually is affecting the present, mm. because they're preparing for that future, that, that, that future of the mine going or whatever. So, and I remember I was in, in Chile a couple of years ago and encountering these academics who were working on, you know, oh, we're, gonna, we're working on post-mining futures. And what were they? Sustainability equals tourism, mm. right? That was kind of the post-extractive imaginary. Yeah, and that's, I mean, some people want tourism and some people could live off tourism, but other people go, oh, these people would be poking in our houses all the time. <laughs> I mean, th this is a, a remote, beautiful place where people like the quiet life. Like, you know, some places in remote Australia where 
people are incredibly parochial and just want to live locally and value that highly and value that life as the good life. <laughs> and there are indigenous communities like that and small towns in Australia that are like that. It's like, well, yeah, a bit of tourism, okay, but, <laughs> you know, we, we don't want to be overrun by tourists and nor can we all survive off it. I, I thought it was interesting in failing forward as if neoliberalism advances in spite of its failures. And then I, was, I remembered, and I always remember, Pavanelli's introduction to Economies of Abandonment, the Ursula Le Guin story. The idea that, well, you know, it's actually dependent on the failures. Like, it can't move forward unless the failures always exist. Mm. Unless someone's getting shortchanged, it mm-hmm. can't. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's about placing the failure more accurately yeah, all of those kind of conditions of neoliberalism are about, you know, the failure happens because you are a failure, you know, being making people responsible for the failures and saying, oh, well, you know, that's your fault. Pick yourself yeah. up. A denial of the structural conditions of failure, a denial yeah. of the structural conditions of some people, the ones who are set up to fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, the good life being a wholly well-thought-out idea mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. relies on extraction mm-hmm. of someone else's misery. There's an extremely upbeat note. Yeah, I was just going to say there's a way in which, so when you're running a podcast, you, you have the impulse to want to end on a positive note, mm. and that itself has a kind of neoliberal undertone to it. So maybe it's good to end on a slightly more disappointed note. My, my positive note is that I feel more enlightened. I feel more enlightened too. <laughs> yeah, also, I uh, enjoy the company quite a lot. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks very much. I didn't want. To, I am in trouble for being, as I said before. You know, I've been in trouble by from the people I work with of being too cynical and too mm. negative about mining, and so I think you have to be careful of that in a way as well. But um, you can probably edit that out if you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great way to end. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much to both of our guests, David Kelly and Sally Babbage, for joining us. Um, If you'd like to learn more about Sally's work, you can find her on the UQ webpage. Um, And if you'd like to keep up to date on David's work, you can follow him on Twitter at Dave L. Kelly. Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is produced by me, David Giles, and Timothy Neal, with the assistance of our intern, Lachlan McKenzie, support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University, and in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. So if you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at DH Border Giles, and Tim is at TD Neal. And if you enjoyed this episode, think about giving us a review on iTunes or elsewhere. Mm-hmm.